KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station, broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at kzsu.org. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast, featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Brought to you by Modeler.com, a platform that connects architects from the world's top firms with building products from the world's best brands. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, this is Tom Diora. Thank you, Shay. For our guest today, please welcome Terry Boubois. Architect Terry has experienced in over 30 years, actually 40 years of architecture and advanced technology practice in the San Francisco Bay Area and continues to travel and present at conferences around the world. Terry has also consulted with NASA, Apple, Adobe, and many other Silicon Valley companies and is CEO of Building Knowledge Systems, LLC, BKS. For more information, visit profiles.stanford.edu slash Terry dash B-A-A-U-B-O-I-S. Hello, Terry. We're excited and honored to have you here today on The Modern Architect. Hello, and thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Terry, tell us um, what were kind of your early inspirations for what you've done and what you continue to do in architecture and all the uh, the technology advancements and the building materials it's it's uh, as I, we discussed before it's it's very um, very broad very deep very wide and uh, i wanted to ask you what, what were your early inspirations for for uh, for what are you doing now well it's really clear to me what sort of introduced me to the idea of being interested in architecture very very young i was born in japan and then we moved a lot in my life. And then I was in Japan for my junior high school years again. But one of the things I noticed just as a factor and a function of moving around so much is everywhere I went, the people that were there said, this is normal. And I go, oh, that's interesting because it's not <laughs> like where I just was. And okay. they thought that was normal. So you realize that you're in Japan. There's certain architecture is the spatial quality, the materials, all the, the way it's um, uh, integrated into the landscape is different than when you go to the other places I okay. lived, which was Seattle and Maine and New York and Alabama and Virginia and, and Michigan. Wow, and, that's a lot. Well, it's fun. Yeah. I really enjoy I it. Like that. I it's said, I, I have. I, it wasn't my decision. Yeah. I, if I, it was stay with the family yeah. and move. How did they? How did it happen? It's like okay, uh, we're going to go now, and the next. No, month the or military two? moves everybody around. Anybody. There's a book called Military Brats that explains what being a military member of a military family is like. And it's really interesting because all my friends that I know are military brats. Uh-huh. It's like we have something in common, and that's one of them. You notice, and you have to sort of like when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Okay. So, um, uh, and then when I was 11 in um, junior high school, my art teacher said to me, you know, Terry, you like math, you're good at science, and you're good at art. Why don't you be an architect? And I thought, oh, okay, I'll do that. Um, sounds like a good idea. <laughs> okay, I'll do that. Well, you're 11. It's <laughs> yeah, like yeah. you're our teacher, you uh-huh. know, and uh, is making a comment. And then I was driving with my family. You know how you're sitting in the backseat of the car and you're looking around. And I saw this house on a hillside in the forest in Japan. 
And I said, who lives there? And they said, oh, that's an architect's house. No way. Yes. And I said, oh, I'm going to be an architect. And, wow. And so it I just— I really wow. Yeah, because you, you notice that things are different everywhere you go. And then you, you, you learn that somebody thinks you should be an architect, and then architects are the ones that are making the buildings in, in these different environments. And so I fell in love with it very, very early. And here's what I found. First of all, it was very convenient. Like when my parents' friends said, oh, what is your son going to be? Oh, he's going to be an architect. End of <laughs> sentence. They don't grill you to death on, you know, uh, what, how come you can't decide or what is it you're going to yeah. be really. Um, everyone thinks they know what an architect is. And um, – uh, it's interesting, though, because I used to go every year to my daughter's classes, and she was my assistant, and we would, I would teach the, the students in all the grades, you know, uh-huh. going through the school system, uh, what an architect was. And I would say, how many people know what an architect is? And they all raise their hands, okay? And I go, okay, what's an architect? And they said, they build houses. They build buildings. And I said, no, they don't build buildings. And they, they all sort of paused, you know, because, you know, they're used to either getting something right or getting something wrong. This was sort of confusing for them. So my daughter and I would, like, show them. We'd have them go into teams. And I said, okay, here are three blocks. You draw the picture of the three blocks in a certain configuration. And then your partner puts the blocks in the, that configuration because that's the contractor and you're the architect. Architects draw the drawings of mm-hmm. what the building should look like. And, they, and, and there, have, there are some actual people, uh, other than my daughter, who also went into urban and regional planning, that became architects because they had been in a couple of years of my daughter and I presenting. Oh, that's uh, terrific. Yeah, because it, and, really... and don't you find that? I mean, yeah. there's some people. You're an architect, I'm sure. No, no, I, I'm, I'm, I've worked with different materials okay. and, and, uh, and, uh, and advice. But it's like people yeah. don't aren't, – aren't, it's not clear – Everybody yeah. I talk to at some point in time says, oh, architects build the buildings. Yeah. And, um, you know, you can do design build, but not everybody does. Yeah. And so I like that difference because you have to th- think and draw and realize that someone's going to have to build this building from my drawings. It's a very important part of what we're talking yeah, about Yeah. So, so their response, how did you find out that some of them actually went on to become in the architect or urban design or builders or – in the built environment somehow. Well, all the children that were on MySpace oh, are on MySpace. Facebook now. Okay, yeah. And so my, my daughter will say, you know, so-and-so became an architect. Or It was that influential. Wow. I, I believe it, though. Well, I look, at, look at who influenced me. My art teacher just yeah. saying, Terry, you should be an architect. Cause, yeah. Because it's a beautiful. It is. You know how they talk about STEM or STEAM? And STEM okay. is science, technology, engineering, and math. And STEAM is science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. And by arts, you know, we can shove history in there and some of the other arts in addition to just art. Um, but also architecture is there. And it's like it is – architecture is the best multidisciplinary practice you can imagine. You have to use all of those capabilities or at least know people that do them really yeah. well and, and form your teams. Yeah. It's uh, – and, and the buildings used to um, – even be storytelling, like if you study cathedrals and they have stained glass windows and statues and stories in the in the um, floors and things like that. So yeah, it's an important part of the world. Yeah, I and I think there there is a, an interest specifically. I've said this quite a bit on on a number of shows. Is it's kind of a, a calling, 
as opposed to something you back into. How do you feel about that? I find myself very attracted to it. The other thing was every time I thought of something to do, I could do it under the concept of architecture. If I wanted to make a movie, I could make a movie about architecture. If I wanted to write you know, an article, I could write an article about architecture. So it just didn't limit me in any way. I yeah. just found it was a, it's a very creative area, and it's very, very practical as far as um, uh, it's like we're the last of the magicians, but it's slow motion <laughs> magic, okay? You wave your there's no building there. You wave your hand the and then magician. five years later, there's a building yeah. there. and it, it, but it, it, it is mysterious. I mean, I'm amazed at what <laughs> it gets built. like it. You know, if you look yeah. at the pyramids or if you look at uh, Salesforce Tower. You know, in San Francisco, the newest, latest, tallest building in San Francisco. It's amazing. Yeah. It, it, it's just absolutely amazing that human beings can do this. Yeah. Uh, how, how does it, th- this breadth of, of, uh, that you're talking about, there's so many other facets that you're involved with. What did you, your, the, your latest company that um, you're the president of? Mm-hmm. BK. Uh, BKS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk to a little bit about that and, and how. Uh, well, I've always felt that. Um, architecture isn't linear. In other words, there is a start and a finish and you move forward through phases and things like that. But within the design process, as I learned it from a very good architect um, in uh, Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, you draw something and then you react to it yourself. You look at it and you improve the parts that are bad and you leave the parts that are good. And you keep doing that. And that's called iterating. It's like rather than moving Great word. forward, I love that. Iteration. it's, it's uh, you're, you're iterating it. And then you start putting in things like um, uh, a stairway because if it's a two-story building. I had a client one time came to me. And they said, well, we've designed our own house, but we can't fit in the stairway between the first and second floors. And I go, well, that's really an important part of the architecture because you'll want to get up there sometime. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. it's sort of like, well, but there's a room in the way now. And, I, you know, so that's why you, you can't just do it linearly. Okay. And the other thing, you know, I s- sort of talked <clears throat> about this a little bit already, but it's to me, it's the most important thing in my career in architecture right now. And that is knowledge or knowing you know, and because I'm teaching, I get to uh, have the privilege of working with students that are learning. And you can tell when they're sitting there and they don't know what to do next. And you know they're not going to think of it. You know, it's like th- sitting there sweating bullets not knowing what to do is not fun for anybody. So if I ask them a question like, what, what are you thinking here? And they say, and I said, well, why don't you try this? And they try it. It just releases the, the tension and the not knowing what to do. The other thing, um, you and I are both interested in materials and products, which I just really – I just um, – when I did a study for NASA in 1985 on transferring technology from the aerospace industry to the building industry. And it was all about – I thought I was going to be looking at um, – you know, um, composite materials, connectors, you know, all uh, window types and things like that. And they had mm-hmm. that. But we, was also, we also were looking at artificial intelligence, high-speed computer graphics, um, a virtual reality, which we called um, something else at the time. But it's virtual yeah, reality. What was it? Now. I'm curious. What was it called? Not virtual reality. What um, was it? I'll think of it in a second. Okay. Well, go ahead. Please. And, yeah. and uh, But we had the goggles. We had data gloves. We had a... 
you know, umbilical cord coming out of the top of a of a of a uh, of a um, motorcycle helmet that weighed forty pounds. It's like almost <laughs> you had to do neck exercises to wear it around. But a lot of this technology has been around for a long period of time, okay. and the the reason that they were we were looking at virtual reality is because the an at to send an astronaut to the outside of the space station costs about two hundred thousand dollars. So if they could control a robot using goggles and hand controls, they could repair things or fix things or check things out and it'd be like they were out there. Oh. And so that was the original yeah. technological reason for it. The other thing is we, we came up with the, um, uh, the early days of the Mars rover because they hadn't, computers <clears throat> and video cameras hadn't been connected yet. So we got $40 million from the, the Congress to study how to do that. And I didn't do a lot of this work, but we, there were people that could write algorithms and people that were doing uh, video research and computer research. And they put together the first group. The first thing they taught it was to tell the difference between a cat and a dog. And then the, 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 it was that to, simple. Yeah. Okay. Be, and it, because the ear spacing knows relative okay. size. And then it did this thing called associative reasoning, which is really fun. And, and that is things that look like the thing I'm looking at now. So it begins to say it's probably a cat or I'm sure it's a cat. So it started this artificial intelligence and out using an algorithm to look at things and figure out what to do. What it allowed them to do at NASA was to design the Mars rover. They sent it down to JPL. They, they further developed the technology so that it could look at a, a, a geographic scenario on Mars and decide for itself whether it could go somewhere or not, rather than the eight minutes to send the question back and then eight minutes to go, we'll turn the camera a little bit, you know. Yeah. So we had that. And interestingly enough, I was up in Montana for a couple of years and I came back down here and I went over to NASA to reestablish uh, connections at Ames Research Center. And they said, well, you know where all your work is that went into the Mars rover? And I went, no, what do you mean? He said, the algorithm is the same for the self-driving car. No way. That's where they got them. The Mars rover. And so, of course, you know, you, we read about oh, these amazing. incredible advances and Google working with NASA and all these kinds of things. And Stanford is in there, too, because I think a lot of the self-driving car was developed at Stanford uh, with some of the programs here. And uh, it's just really an exciting area. I mean, it, Silicon Valley is like to do architecture in Silicon Valley is just absolutely crazy good. Yeah. You know, the, the soil is very fertile. And I think that... The, the mon it just it's there's just something about the energy or something about the field. I don't know if I'm reaching too much, but it's just something about it that attracts and also builds. Yeah, and it's like probably nowhere else on the planet. Yeah. you've and, been around enough to know. Yeah, and I've been. It's, I, it's that unique. I was beta testing Photoshop before it was 1.0 on a Blackbird oh. cam uh, a Blackbird laptop. It was the first Apple laptop, and I was at the. A, a lake beach in Emerald Lake Hills watching my daughter take swim lessons and I wrote an article called Am I at Work? You know, which is like I'm watching my daughter take swimming lessons. I'm on a, a, a portable uh, laptop and I'm using Photoshop and it was like um, I was quoted in the New York Times that year saying, I hope there's Photoshop in heaven. I mean, because it's just like sometimes you wake, you know, you come to and it's four o'clock in the morning and you've done all this work on a Photoshop image. But I use that a lot in my architecture and um, to be able to do imagery. And now we do a lot of 3D designs as well. Yeah. Let's touch back on that. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. 
The Native American Health Center is a nonprofit organization that has served the Bay Area Native population since 1972. Clinics in Oakland, Richmond, Alameda, and San Francisco offer comprehensive services to improve the health and well-being of Native Americans, uh, Alaska Natives, and residents of the surrounding communities. Services may be available with or without health insurance. To learn more or to make an appointment at a nearby clinic, visit www.nativehealth.org. That's nativehealth.org. And now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Terry Bubois, architect and consultant professor in the architect design program at Stanford University. For more information, please visit profiles.stanford.edu slash Terry dash B-E-A-U-B-O-I-S. Terry, how long, if you've ever quantified the average time it takes when you're working on something in beta to actually become commercialized, have you ever, is there, is there a time period or number of years or months that you can recall that it usually goes from beta to actual use? It depends on the technology. I'm still waiting for the level of, even the people that are producing VR goggles today know they're not at the point they want to be as far as the optics and the uh, capabilities. And they're all trying to do that. And so having okay. worn VR goggles in 1983, oh, wow. it, you know, you can do the math. I mean, some this stuff takes a long time. Some of it is in there for, a, and, and I think that a lot of people don't realize it. So it's, in some ways, I'm more impatient than other people. In other ways, I'm more understanding about how long it takes to really get this stuff right. And the combination of talent and technology and, you know, people knowing how to run a business and being successful. But it's so exciting because it really does affect architecture. And that's where my heart lies. I want to be able to develop spaces that are in, improve or maintain the quality of life for people. And I think the clues are in this world that gets um, happens in Silicon Valley before a lot of other places on Earth. So we have sort of almost like a preview of stuff. Okay. And yeah, like okay. I was beta testing the Newton, which uh, oh, maybe some people okay. remember. Yeah. And the Russian company Paragraph was out here working on the handwriting thing. So I was meeting with someone from Apple and I said, what's the future of this thing? And they didn't say a word and they just went... Oh, really? They held it up to their ear. Yeah. So everyone at Apple knew that the Newton was a precursor to the iPhone. And I've heard so many times saying that, like, the iPhone came out of nowhere and it was – there's that, nothing – So it's not true. It did not well, come out of nowhere. Well, that was my experience, okay. you know, is that I was talking with people that knew they were going to try to put these things together. The thinking at the time – because they tried the Pippin at uh, – they tried out a, a, a phone – or a, a combination phone and computer called the Pippin uh, that they uh, demoed at the um, – I think it was at the opening of the um, Disney World in Florida near um, um, uh, the um, experimental planned community of tomorrow, you know. Tomorrowland? Uh, no. No, it's uh, a... Um, we'll come Epcot. Up okay. Is what it spells. And... Uh, and, and After all that. They've got... Because, you know, remember the days when computers were here and your phone was there and you'd have to, like, pick up your phone and then look up the number on your computer? And it was really kludgy, you know? And it wasn't that long ago, for me at least. 
And so they tested out this Pippin, which was the phone was on the side of the computer. And when you picked it up, it would display your telephone numbers and you could touch one. And it was like really trying to integrate the phone and the computer. And they said it bombed at their testing that they did in Florida. And so they they paused on doing that. They weren't certain they wanted to turn the Newton into um, uh, the iPhone. And it's not that clear. I'm really simplifying it. But I'm just saying those are my experiences. Um, because it's been it's been fun to beta test things. I beta tested a lot of software and hardware, and uh, um, got to beta test. Uh, do you look for VR. them? Do you look for t- to test them, or do they kind of come to you? Well, both. It depends on how how much time I have or what I'm looking for. I'm looking for things that will help me be a better architect, or things that I can show. Uh, like I have actually done a number of houses where the client sits next to me, and I design the house in front of them as they're talking. Really? Yeah. I designed a house that was 10,000 square feet in five days, two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon. And at the end of the five days, we had the house, 10,000 square foot house, 900 square foot guest house, 900 square foot garage, and a 1,500 square foot barn and stable. We had every piece of furniture located. We had all the windows located in elevation, and we had all the outlets located. And because the people were really organized, this was their second house. Well, that sounds very engaging. Was that by design that you wanted that? Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. And I could almost get any client I wanted to because the rumors of you just sit down with this guy and he just helps you design your house. The fact of the matter is these people were um, – they had done a project in Southern California and the two of them were a really nice couple. They knew what they wanted but the combination – you and I were talking about this earlier. It's a dialogue of – what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And they would go out. Like that, we would meet for two hours in the morning. And if there was a topic that we hadn't resolved, they would go out and walk up and down University Avenue and do their research and come back. We'd do two hours in the afternoon and they'd say, we decided this or we decided that. And so they were really engaged. And So you and, can adjust even with that? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's all about getting what you want. By the time someone's doing a house with an architect, you want to be able to – I mean, everything should be – you just – reach for it and it's there because that's where it's supposed to be and that's where you want it to be. I mean, it should just be a custom. Yeah. How do you home. capture that essence in that process? Um, it's different for different people. Like some people say, well, how long does it take you to design a house? And the real answer is, well, how long does it take you to design a house? Because we're working together on this. And if it yeah. takes them, uh, I've had clients that will take three weeks to decide whether there's a bidet in the master bedroom <laughs> really? bathroom or not. <laughs> You know, and somebody will call me up, say, take it out. And the next person will, you know, the other person will call up uh, and say, put it in, you know. And so my, I'm trying to design this elastic bathroom. And if that goes on for two months, does it take me two months to design a house? Or it's just I'm accommodating something that they're they're dealing with. And yeah. it, the remarkable thing, and you and I touched on this a little bit, um, th- because if it's the first time they're doing this, there's things they don't know. So I feel like it's my job to bring knowledge um, to them about the decisions that they need to make. They, they think, oh, I've got an architect. I've got a contract. Aren't they going to make these decisions? And the fact of the matter is whether they have silver or gold fixtures in, in a room or, or mm-hmm. whatever, met the metal trim, they should be involved in that. They should actually be asked in it. And then we can talk to them about the um, implications of their decision. The one that, that, that I always use is people go into a tile store and they find a tile they like and they buy it and they have it put on their floor. They walk on it and it cracks. And they go, what's wrong with this tile? And the tile manufacturer goes, oh, well, it's a wall tile. You can't use that on the floor. Oh. And they get sued. 
And so, because I, I work with a lot of product manufacturers, so I said, I said, well, th- there's something wrong with this picture. And they and the, the product manufacturers go, yeah, they should know not to use wall wall tile on the floors. And I'm I'm going, okay, I'm in the middle of this now, okay. And so what I do is it takes ten seconds at the beginning of a project. I say we're not going to use wall tile on the floors in any of the rooms if you're going to have tile floors and or tile walls. And here's why. It's over. It's like it's not like they're going to for, you know forget that. It's such yeah. a great thing, and they don't want to have the problems. It's just they haven't done a house before. And if we take all of the statements, or even my clients or everybody's clients, let's imagine we could do that kind of um, you know survey monkey uh, approach okay. to finding out what did you learn, what did you know by the end of your project that you wish you that you wish you had known at the beginning. That's the knowledge I'm trying to bring to the beginning of a project for everybody. Oh, that's a very unique, not just a style. That that, that whole process is uh, not common. Yeah. But and but you know, if you've, if you've dealt with materials, if you've dealt with products, I have a friend right now in Pennsylvania. She has a dryer sitting on her front porch because she ordered it. None of the information before she ordered it showed that it had a six-inch vent out the side and she only had one and a half inches on that side. So they delivered it. It didn't fit in. So she couldn't put it in the house. So she put it, it was put on her front porch. And the delivery guy is going, oh, we don't take it back to the store. That's your, you got to do that. You know, so we just deliver it. You're, you know, we can do the installation, but we don't take things back. And so I feel like homeowners that really deserve to be treated well in that process are not always happy with the results. The issue is if if everything goes well, they don't know what they've been protected okay. from, and it's hard for them to appreciate it. But it's really good. I mean, you end up with a quality of life. That's what we're going for. Whether it's a, a complex house, whether it's an expensive house, whether it's a really inexpensive house, it's just that both the space, the materials, and the products are providing the quality of life that the people are seeking. Yeah. How do you measure that? Do you think there's a way to measure that? Interesting you should ask, because one of the projects I'm working on right now is uh, smart villages in India. And the reason we're doing that is we were all hot about smart cities, the way everybody you know thinks that everyone's moving to the cities now, so we've got to make our cities smart. And that, that's a good movement. But we went over to India. We met with the chief minister of Andhra Pradesh, which is a state in India, like California is a state in the United States. And um, the chief minister, Naidu, brilliant man, and his son and uh, daughter-in-law both graduated from Stanford MBAs. And uh, so uh, Naidu called us over when he heard what we were interested in doing. And he met with us a number of times. And he was he, I just really like him a lot, and I respect what he's doing. He says, Terry, we have 1.3 billion people in India. He goes, 70% of them live in villages. If they all move to the cities... It's going to collapse my cities. It's going to collapse my villages. It's going to collapse my state. He goes, you have to design some smart villages for me so that we can have an alternative, a viable alternative. It's not like we're going to make them stay in the okay. village. Yeah. But after we started looking at, okay, well, what's a smart village? You know, that's the first question. And it's sort of everything. It's sustainable. It's green. It's, you know, resilient. All of the kinds of things that you want in it. It isn't just technology. It isn't just IoT um, uh, things like that. And so that's what we're working on now. I'm going over next month, um, and we're have for the fourth, my fourth trip in two years. How long has this been, this project been going? Um, since, uh, December of 2015. Okay. Wow. So how's the progress been to this date? 
Uh, very uh, wonderful. I mean, it really... Very wonderful. Yeah. No, it's like yeah. you learn things. I, I, like, <laughs> on one hand, um, we, we did an analysis of jobs and economy and products and building and all these kind of things, and we decided that if, if the riverbank had the right kind of mud, they could make their own clay bricks, and we don't have to pay for transporting the bricks. It gives people something to do. They have their own... Uh, the clay in that area is this dark gray, uh, almost black uh, clay. And so it makes this beautiful, they have beautiful ceramics and pottery that they make that they're known for because their their clay is, is... Wow, so you can make a dwelling out of it then. Oh, gosh, yeah. And if you've seen things that are built all over the world, like African villages yeah. and different things, you know, the building material could be very artistic. And I'm not saying everybody's going to want that, but I, yeah. we were just looking for a building material that was... Local materials, because if you go if you go back far enough in any place, I mean, if they were in a forest, they built with wood. If they were in a stone, rocky area, they built with stone. You know, if they were near um, uh, clay or mud uh, sources, uh, they built with those materials. And it's really interesting the number of people that I can mention that to that are my clients today, because we're so used to, you know, getting this from one country and this from another state, and yeah. that we don't necessarily think regionally. But we're we're working with um, uh, Indian villages, um, and uh, we actually got a sample of the clay, and it's impounded in a agricultural review part of the airport in Germany, and we're trying to get it out right now. Really? Close. Yeah, because okay. uh, the MIT uh, Tata Lab, uh, uh, it was uh, agreed to do the material um, analysis for us, and they were going to tell us what other elements we'd have to add to the clay to make it into a good brick. Oh, nice. It's just wonderful. This work is like yeah. really getting down to the basics. On one hand, we're just like rubbing two sticks together to start a fire. On the other hand, we're making things and we're, we're sort of trying to infuse economy into the village at the same time we're coming up with architectural solutions. Yeah, it, it, it would seem uh, – it seems to me that what you're doing what you're doing in India is actually you, – you started off – you know, obviously very, very basic. And now you're moving into technology and solutions that actually can work and benefit here. Oh, gosh, yeah. And it, and there's so much to do. I, I want to m- mention uh, that a, a good friend of mine, Professor Solomon Darwin at UC Berkeley, sort okay. of started this program. And he was born and raised in the village that we're working with in India. And so he's like, he took me to India with a group of people. And I spent six weeks with him just going where he thought we should go and doing what he thought we should do. And so I'm very, very fortunate. And I had one of the best introductions to India anyone could have. And then as an architect, it just caught fire with me that this is – every time I go to India, I learn something about the United States. I go that, to, okay, I go to a, India a and the answer. things are flooding. And I go, oh, poor India. You know, and the things are mixing together that aren't supposed to mix together. I come back. There's flooding in West Virginia, Maryland, Louisiana, and California. <laughs> Yeah. And I'm going, wait a minute, maybe this has something to do with people trying to live on Earth. And maybe we have more in common with these people and we <laughs> can learn call. from them. And yeah. so it's it's really engaging. And the people are so nice. Yeah, The people are wonderful and they love their village. I can – and there's 500,000 people of Indian heritage that live in Silicon Valley. Okay. Okay. And if I start talking to them and I start, if, if I say to them, what village are you from in India? 
you can see their countenance change, their facial expression changes. And they sort of, some of them get dreamy. Some of them, you know, they start thinking about their parents that still live there and bringing them over. And so there's a real strong connection between Silicon Valley and uh, India as well, as we know. Uh, yeah, both here at Stanford and in uh, Silicon Valley. Is, is there, will there also be even more? Uh, I don't know if the word "more" is the correct way, but of a connection. I hope so. I hope so because people are starting to go back to India. India is really getting better and better in some areas. Well, you're it's, helping it for sure. <laughs> well, we hope to. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an opportunity. Yeah. It's a real privilege to be involved in it at all and have this ability to. Um, I did a, a house in Montana, and it was an eco-smart house, and we won a USGBC award for it and the Greenhouse of the Year um, uh, f- uh, for it. And uh, when we went to um, Big Sky to get the award, you know, I was saying, you know, we'd really – one of the feelings I had is I was doing one house and it would have been so much more effective if we could have done a neighborhood just because of the viability of something for one house versus for more houses. So I had this feeling coming out of that project. I wanted to do more houses. And in Montana, it was sort of like, well, you've already done one house. Why would you want to do another house? And when I was going around <laughs> India, I met this a person who was a um, politician, basically, but he was part of a village. Or actually, he was p- part of 20 villages. And when I told him about the Montana house, he said, could you do 1,900 houses for me? And so it's not all about just numbers and me doing work. It's just the opportunity is significant. You know, if we could do, you know, so, you know, we're, talking to people like Tesla solar roof tiles, you know, and yeah. Tesla battery, you know, as far as the kinds of solutions for distributing, you know, and making people, keeping people independent. Uh, you know, there are other people that are working with utility companies trying to be, um, you know, figuring out how to distribute uh, uh, energy in, um, uh, in India. And it's sort of like, if you have a hammer in your hand, you're looking for a nail, right? So the people that ha- are, are the doing something all, yeah. all, all over, they're like they're sincerely interested in providing the solutions they have. And so I feel like, you know, my goal is, and I've been teaching uh, at, this at Stanford as a guest lecturer in uh, CEE right now, but I teach a module on smart villages dash India, Andhra Pradesh, India, and it's in a course on smart communities because really. It, it's impossible to find a line to draw between a smart home, a smart village or town, and a smart city, you know, because we've got San Jose is a million people, San Francisco is 600,000 plus, and Palo Alto is 55,000, Woodside's 5,000, 500, you know, so we have villages, we have mm-hmm. towns, we have cities, we can't just call them all cities just because they call themselves cities. So there are architectural solutions, I think, that when we take everything into consideration and we look at sort of the sliding scale of here's a house in a town that's near a city, because I don't know anyone in the Bay Area that just stays in one municipality yeah. all week. No. We're all over no. the place. Yeah, we definitely are. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. The Thulani Program, associated with German Shepherd Rescue of Northern California, is dedicated to helping the most vulnerable dogs. Thulani rescues dogs from shelters or other life-threatening situations and provides needed medical and physical support, finding good homes where older shepherds can live out their lives with dignity and love. You can learn more about Thulani, adopt a dog, or contribute to help underwrite the costs by visiting thulanidogs.org. That's T H. U L A N I dogs.org. 
Now back to The Modern Architect. We're talking today with Terry Boubois, architect and consultant professor in the architect design program at Stanford University. You can find, uh, for more information, please visit profiles.stanford.edu slash Terry dash B-E-A-U-B-O-I-S. Terry, talk a little bit about, I'm seeing what, from, from what you're saying, isn't everywhere a village? Well, in essence, this is one of the things that I'm, you know, thank you for picking up on that, that I teach people. We, if, if we're reminded that Paris was once a village, Rome was once a village, London was once a village, they may have been a fishing village, there may have been nothing there at some point in time. You know, Manhattan was once a village. Um, we begin to see time as an element in human development of living situations. And so we could look at something and go, oh, that's a city. But where does it go from here? And then what about the other areas that are around it? Um, in Beijing, they're thinking of building another city the size of Tokyo outside of Beijing because the growth is going to be so significant. Uh, in the villages that we were uh, uh, living in, which was really, it's an amazing way to do it. I was thinking about this last night. Um, one night, there, there's one building that has Wi-Fi, so we were all working there late, and then I was walking to the building that um, I slept in, and there was this animal that I saw by the woodpile. And I was looking at it and looking at it, and um, it was then this larger animal that was obviously the mother of the animal I was looking at came out. And it's like when you're in a location and you don't know what this animal is, you, you sort of go back and forth and, you know, uh, and, and, and so I asked someone, I said, what am I seeing here? And they said, oh, those are the mongoose. They, oh, they keep nice. the the cobras away, you know? Remember Ricky Tiki Tiki? Yeah, and, yeah. Ferrets and, in essence, but I yeah, love the word mongoose. It yeah, great. Yeah, so, so all of a sudden it's like I'm in a village that like Rudyard Kipling was writing about, <laughs> you know? And, um, and, and we're really trying to respect the people and they're showing us how they cook, you know? And some of them use uh, cook stoves and spaces that actually are not good for their health. And so part of what we're working on is this human issue of how do you change habit and behavior, particularly if the people don't want to. You know? oh. And it's a whole thing. Yeah, you got to go we'll, into that a bit. How do you change behavior? Well, I mean, it, we don't do – architects aren't trained necessarily to do that. But this sort of opens up the whole thing. It added a new professional type to the, the, the multimedia, uh, multidisciplinary team that I just really feel like – Building multidisciplinary teams to look at communities and what a smart village is is the way I'm going now. And, and uh, whether it's, um, you know how Facebook is doing a smart village in Menlo Park? No. Okay. Oh, no, oh they are. Okay. They're do it's going to have okay. housing and a pharmacy and a drugstore. And, you know, they're looking at the commute and are, are they building this for themselves? And, and it's sort of like the, 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 the um, Silicon Valley buses from San Francisco – some people thought everybody was going to love that, and some people just hate them. So it'll be – I'm sure we'll have lots of discussion, and there'll be protests, and people that are really looking forward to working in, at, at Facebook and, and just walking to work, you know, because they're, they're, they're able to get a place that's there. Google has, like, about 100 yeah. acres near Dearden, sure. um, uh, 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 the transportation hub there, and uh, SAP Center. 
and they're going to be running into some controversy. It's a really interesting time. It, it, so it's not going to go smoothly, and I'm not expecting that, nor do I feel that that's this, the, the situation we'd rather have than people really thinking about this, because it brings up questions that are really important. Now, one of the things that we're doing in our approach to village design is we're not trying to gentrify the area. We're not trying to build condo projects that everybody in the village can't afford and so they have to go to somewhere else. That's not the goal. The goal is to create a village that supports the people that are there. So we had to interview the people that were there. We interviewed the weavers, the potters, the uh, cashew farmers, the rice farmers, the shrimp farmers, um, uh, the uh, how they make their living. They have these co-ops, you know, that buy all the product and then distribute it. And um, what the CM wants to do, the chief minister of the state, he's he's so cool. He wants to do dashboards. He wants all the information in the villages. For, he wants to be able to see it. But here's the difference. He wants every individual in his state to be able to see the same information he sees. This isn't about collecting information on people. Yeah. And we're working on a way of how do we make it sort of an opt-in kind of thing that helps the people improve their own businesses by knowing what's going on and, and how, you know, getting the same perspective on this uh, data. So we're taking people that uh, – and some of these villages, it's really interesting. They're agricultural villages – I just learned about this, and I'd heard about this before. Some of them didn't have money five, ten years ago. They bartered. Everything was barter and trade. And if we think about, you know, the agricultural uh, um, revolution, and then you know, we think of hunter-gatherers and barter and trade and things yeah. like that. Albert Einstein said that if he would come back again, I, re I don't recall exactly, but I know this is this capture. If he was to come back again or start over, he would major in the art of bartering. It's amazing. <laughs> but here's what happens is a farmer doesn't really know what the value of their land is. They're fifth-generation farmers. And the you know, if the government comes in and says, we want to build a Nike sneaker, you know, a shoe factory, <laughs> yeah. and we need property, we'll give you this much money for your farm. And they don't know what, what to do. I mean, it seems like all the money in the world. Like, have they just gotten so rich they never have to work again? <laughs> and so the family gets a place in town. They have to pay rent. The money's starting to run out, you know. And so they go down and to the shoe factory, and they can't get a job. So all of a sudden this tension and, and what the right thing to do is, is very complex and it requires a lot of people to be involved. Because as an architect, I can, I can think of a lot of, but not all of the architectural elements, you know. We need structural engineers, mechanical engineers, you know, uh, plumbing, fire protection, IOT people, all of this yeah. stuff, transportation people, you know. And so it's a real interesting approach to trying to get it right. Yeah, I will say, you know, but it sounds like the the, uh, the the smart village, the Google village, the Facebook village, and the village in India, there's not much difference. And what I mean by that, I mean at the core and at the essence, it's, they're almost, they're the same. The concept. Am, am I off? Or? No, no, okay. you're absolutely right. I think okay. it's one of the hardest things to convey to people because they, I think if they saw it, they would have, you know, everybody's first reaction to this stuff, which is, no, we don't live like that. You know, on the other hand, I saw pictures of the United States in the 1920s the other day, you know, Dust Bowl kind of stuff. Yeah. And I was going, wow, I, I don't think people living today, you know, are really appreciate how close we are to 
that. And I feel like as a designer and as architect, and I, they're giving me a tour of their building. I had a, I had a family, um, when I was talking about let's do some indoor plumbing, a lot of the houses don't have indoor plumbing. So I was explaining to them. I thought they were, I thought they were going to think I was, you know, godlike for proposing this. Their response was, you want us to do what in our house? <laughs> Okay. Yeah. I mean, it re- you really have to have an open mind and understand it from their point of view. The other thing was there was a woman who was holding a baby and she was um, doing something with thread and her husband was doing a handloom thing. And I said, do you guys want the businesses to be moved out so that like maybe there's a, a building in the village where, y- you know, you work on the, mm. the work stuff and then you come home and you're at your home? And she goes, no, this is my grandchild. My daughter's in there cooking. That's my husband. We're going to feed him in a minute. And it's like they had this life and family kind of stuff. And it was hard. It's nothing that I think people in the United States would strive to be like. But in considering exactly what you said, in considering these are humans, they have families, they're three generations standing there in front of me, and they're smiling, and they're happy. Now, their health could be improved, the water quality could be improved, their cooking fuel could be improved, the ventilation could be improved. Well, so could mine. (laughs) (laughs) Your cooking's that bad, huh? (laughs) So all those those factors you're considering are are improvements that we can use now here, down the the street. The the kicker was a number of years ago, I think it was the king of Bhutan was asked about what's your GDP. What's the name of it? King of? Bhutan. Okay. B-H-U-T-A-N. Oh, yeah, okay. And and he was asked, like, what's your GNP of your country? And he goes, I'm not concerned about the GNP. He goes, I'm, I'm interested in the gross national happiness of my citizens. And it started this thing. Seattle now has a happiness index. And what I noticed when I was working up in Montana, we'd, we were given the assignment to look at these small towns in Montana that were disappearing. And was there anything we could do to help them thrive? Does it sound similar? Okay. Mm-hmm. Also, how about Native American Indian reservations? How do we help people, you know, improve their situation and their quality of life? So there's lots of commonality in things that, you know, much that so. are opportunities for all of us. But um, it, it was, it's interesting because everybody needs the same thing. They need this sort of combination of they have to make a living. They need, want good education. And what we found in India, the reason people move to the cities is either in their village, education stops at grade eight. And so if they want to continue education, they have to move. Um, if they want a job that pays well, they have to be, you know, after they graduate, they stay in the city. And if they want to in, engage in entertainment, you know, go to a club or whatever, um, the cities have that and a lot of villages don't. So we're looking at all of those things. Um, but the, the, at the same time, I was looking for my cell phone because I was there and, you know, you're, I'm, I'm cautious about accidentally insulting somebody by asking a question that's like, do you have this or not, you know? <laughs> so I'm, I've got my cell phone. And I said, um, do you use Facebook, you know? And they said, only to talk to our grandparents, we use WhatsApp. If you want to talk to everybody that's standing around you right now. And they grab my phone, they install WhatsApp on it, on it. And then um, they, they send me a message. They said, now you can talk to all of us. It was a group message. And so it's like, wait a minute. That, that was pretty fast. And, and then I come back to the United States, and Facebook has bought WhatsApp. And so now they have 2 billion people that are connected through this technology. And I get 
I have people from India ask me questions every day. Wow. You know? Wow. I'm in contact with all these people, and they're wonderful, wonderful people. Yeah. The, the, the notion of, um, you know, how different and how similar we all are. Um, I've got this difference between success and fulfillment. Is it is it that, you know, what is that? You know, to you, in your work, in your experience, it sounds very fulfilling, not just in a success way, because I think success is always, is most often um, attributed to a material or, or, or a gain. But a fulfillment is very internal and then external. What, what's your thoughts on that? You know, I think it could vary a lot from person to person. My okay. own personal feeling is... I love what I'm doing, um, and it's very fulfilling to me. But part of it is um, one of the things I started to mention about the work we did in Montana. Is we'd go around and we'd ask people, "What do you like about your community?" And we had people that were doing surveys, and and you'll you'll appreciate this exact comment. If they said, "Oh, we have a beautiful lake," the survey person didn't write it down because it's not a quantity. Whoa. If they said, we like our beautiful mountains. Whoa. And we have 13, you know, miles of paved roads. So 13's a number. <laughs> you can write that down, paved roads. And all of a sudden, the lake and the mountains aren't even on the list of things we like about our community because uh, they can't, you, we all can now. It's called triple bottom line thinking as far as what's it do for. What's it, triple bottom? Triple bottom line. Triple bottom um, line. Thinking okay. as far as. Sort of a bookkeeping term, but it, what it means is you're looking out for profits, people, and environment, okay, okay. and quality of life kind of things. And so it's really um, from when I was being taught architecture in the late 60s, early 70s, we had – the Bible was um, Ian McCarg's Design with Nature, which is still – I mean, when we teach today, we still, still use that book. It? Yeah. yeah. And it, it was incredible. It was one of the first times a um, planner, designer, rather than wait for a shopping center developer to hire them and say, we own this property, figure out how to put a shopping center there. He looked at a whole area. He got a government grant to look at the whole, sort of almost the whole Pacific or uh, Potomac Basin and figure out what is the highest and best use of everything and what should be avoided. Like, don't build on these water courses. Don't build here. And it was really a different approach than real estate development uh, can take in, uh, in all over the world, but in the United States. But there are other approaches. I went to a conference of um, Native American um, uh, researchers, and there was a young man from Hawaii. They're Native Americans, yeah. the people that came yeah. before. And they, they refer to people like me as the colonists. You know, they, they go, well, before the colonists came, you know. Uh, but th like the, the big island of Hawaii, the Hawaiians would divide it like in gores or triangles, you know, or like a, like a uh, gores on a parachute, you know. Okay. Like if, you if you drew a line from the top of the mountain to the ocean and then everybody in that triangular section had to take care of their land and they had to take care of the water from when it hit the top of the mountain. It had to go back into the ocean as pure as it hit the mountain. That was their goal. That was part of their tribal requirement. He said oh. – and then he pointed out that, you know um, – uh, people came in and started breaking it into these rectangles and somebody would put something in the stream that affected their downstream neighbor without even thinking about it. It's like they didn't have the same mission or, or um, 
um, nature of, of, of being um, a caretaker for this land and, and things like that. And without getting too touchy-feely about it, because I think some of this stuff uh, people no, like, like to hear about. No, I like how you did about. that, because I get it more than I ever have. Oh, it was amazing. Yeah. It was, you know, and it's nice to have a volcanic island that's yeah. shaped like a cone, and it makes sense no, geometrically. No, I, re- I really get it, like but, from a... Yeah, but Ian McCarg yeah. sort of did it in a natural sort of hills and mountains and, and kind of way. But yeah. the thoughtfulness is what's missing in so much of our development. Yeah. How do you add that thoughtfulness into it? Can Do you think you can, um, not fabricate it, but how do you uh, instill it? Well, I'm, we're working with a group that is um, called the Triple Helix. And it's called that because they try to get government and business and academia to work together on issues. And we find that uh, government is both broken into elected officials and, you know, sort of full-time government employees. And the elected officials, um, they basically want to get elected and then they want to get reelected. And so they're looking at things that, uh, that help them achieve that. The, the other people that are in government, they get money by having taxes. That's where their money comes from. So they're looking at how do they tax us. And as much as we might want to pretend there's another reason for that, that's where the government gets, our, that gets their money. Business people, they're trying to make a profit, and we, that's not a surprise to anybody. And in academia, we're looking for knowledge that might result in a, a paper or a being published or something like that. But if you put those three groups together and you look at, okay, what can we all accomplish that's really creating quality of life issues in these uh, homes and villages and towns and cities, you get different thoughts and you get different ideas than if you're just working with one of those groups. Because it does, you know, as an architect, you go to do something and if there's a regulation, I, I designed a house in Palo Alto in 1979. It had so, a photovoltaic uh, of solar hot water and gray water system. And I was told that gray water was illegal in 1979. And so we had to, we had to put all the, the, the water that comes off the roof and it goes into the storm sewer and it goes into the bay. So every house that was built for 30 years in the San Francisco Bay Area, if it was a piece of land where the, the rain used to fall on the land, okay, and it used to soak into the ground, bring the water table up, if you put a house on it, everything that had a roof shed all of the water into the bay, causing flooding in the waterways on the way to the bay and losing all this potential gray water for watering lawns or doing other yeah. things. Now they're going to make it mandatory that you have you know, <laughs> systems. So thir- it takes 30 years for the government to catch on to something in some cases. Yeah. And California has a very uh, reactionary legislature, so they can move pretty quickly on certain things. Um, so, I, But it takes a... Uh, a people being willing to look at things and assume that they're more complicated rather than looking for simple solutions and simplicity and easy answers and getting it over with. I'm not saying it should be painful or hurt yeah. or take a long time, but I'm just saying um, the, the the complex answers that we can get from multidisciplinary collaboration are so much better. And that's what we have the opportunity to do. And I think we really can uh, be successful in those areas in how, homes in villages and towns, and in cities. Yeah, let's let's touch upon that again. Uh, this is The Modern Architect, KZSU, 90.1 FM, Stanford. The Loop is a radio show featuring electronic music, ranging from house to techno to down-tempo and everything that's good in the underground. Each week, the show features releases, exclusive mixes, top picks, interviews, and live guest DJs from around the world. That's The Loop with Drew Deep. 
That's 11 a.m. till 3 p.m. Monday mornings on KZSU Stanford. Now back to the Modern Architects. We're talking today with Terry Bubois, architect and consultant professor in the architect and design program, civil engineering and environmental at Stanford University. For more information, please visit profiles.stanford.edu terry B-E-A-U-B-O-I-S. Terry, cognitive community, computing. Let's touch a little bit about this because it's our last segment. You talked about the villages, the community. How do you kind of instill all that that thoughtfulness into that? How 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 did this come about? How do you work with this to kind of include that thoughtfulness? I don't know if I'm a no. That's exactly right. Okay. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet um, Doug Engelbart, who invented the computer mouse, um, and. Found That's awesome, man. Pardon? I just love it. That's awesome. Oh, he, he awesome. an incredible individual because yeah. I was I was telling somebody about my work and they said, Have you ever met Dag Ungbart? And I went, No, and he goes, Oh, he's you know, he's so much like you, you should really meet him. And so I had i I had dinner with him at Jing Jing's and then he said he goes, Come to my house, you know, he lives in he lived in Atherton. He said, I want to show you something. I said, Okay. And so he showed me something. And it was a paper he wrote in nineteen sixty that was like a paper I wrote in nineteen eighty. And I just went, I am not worthy. <laughs> and and it, the, the example he used was the augmented architect and how an architect that had access to, uh, to co- a computer providing them the information that they needed at the time they needed it. So it was just-in-time delivery of information, helping the client and designing a building. That was his example of how cognitive computing would be used. Um, perhaps the example that most people are familiar with is the idea of Watson uh, from yeah. IBM. Yeah, and, and, Watson and they, from IBM, I love it. Yeah, and they they wanted to not have artificial intelligence because um, that's like more uh, the goal is to have computers and robots that are smarter than humans. This was to supplement the decision-making process of humans with information that they may not have. The example is they did emergency room medical analysis and came up with a Watson assistant for emergency rooms. So if a doctor was in the emergency room medicine and he, had their, or he or she had their first gunshot wound patient, Watson can read... Everything you're going to read in the next five years, it can read it in the next five minutes. So it has data to journals that haven't been read by this doctor, whatever. And so it can assist you in keeping this patient alive, treating them correctly, knowing about something you might not have known about or whatever. So that world is really, really exciting to me that there could be assistance to humans. I really like humans. I think we should do what we can to keep them around. Say that again. I really like humans. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, if there are people that are, uh, (laughs) you know, trying to make robots smarter than humans and computers smarter than humans, I'm like, game on. Let's do it. Oh, yeah. I'm with you on it. Yeah. And and I was just at a meeting (laughs) two weeks ago. Someone from Harvard Neuroscience came and they said that EEGs were giving us time slices of what the human brain is doing. Time slices, not physical slices. They're, they're doing like uh, I hope so. <laughs> penetrating in the human brain with sound and looking at it. Well, the EEGs were taken every three seconds. The new studies and the new equipment can look at 10 additional steps in between those three seconds. And what it's finding is the human brain is doing 10 times as much stuff as we thought it was, and it's doing stuff we didn't know about it. 
because it was missing it because it was happening for such a short period of time. Hmm. They go, look at this. This part of the brain is talking to this part of the brain. And it's like blip and it goes away. So I think we're going to find out uh, how the human brain works and what's going on that will push back the singularity a little bit and give us some real further information about how robots and computers can really work with humans. I think it's sort of like if someone we know that we can't see ultraviolet light or infrared light. You know, we, there's a spectrum of light that we can see. We know that there's sounds we can't hear. Dogs can hear them or porpoise can hear them or something like that. I think there's things that the brain is doing that we don't know about. I think the human brain. It's just like, for example, how are your mitochondria doing today? Are you? <laughs> well, they're great. Are you in control yeah. of them? Are you? Are you? Do you know what they're doing? And and your 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 bone marrow is making red blood cells right now. How's that going? We know so little about what the human is. Yeah. I think that's going to be equally exciting, not more exciting, not different. But as we look at humans and computers and things like that, I think we're going to become more amazed at what we're doing, what we're capable of, what the human mind is capable of. They just are finding out that the ocular nerve, it, it, it doesn't work the way um, uh, the, the, the early NASA stuff worked where everything had to go back to Johnson Space Center and then they told them what to do. In the ocular nerve, you know how if someone throws a ball at your head, your hand sort of goes up and you didn't yeah. really think of it. You're going, oh, well, that must have been really fast. You know, it went to my brain and then my brain told my hand what to do. No, the ocular nerve has analytical capability in the optic nerve. It's distributed. Your liver can do things that the, it's your brain's not sending the message to tell the liver what to do all the time. And we don't know about that. So. The reason I get excited about this is let's build buildings that have that kind of distributed knowledge and capability because we're, we're controlling the heat and temperature and, and the, the moisture level of air. You know, we, we should be able to design buildings that can learn from how humans work because we do a pretty good job of it. There are other animals we can study too as far as what they're really good at. But that's why I'm interested in this because I really think the goal is to improve the quality of life for humans through better buildings and better architectural design. And I think we get that by having more multidisciplinary collaboration. No, I love that. You've heard we're in the information age. Oh, what, yeah. do you, what do you think of the next stage being the intelligence age? Well, I think it's going to be the the knowledge age. Okay. You either know something or you don't know something. Yeah. This, That's, we I like talked that. about that at the green room. We'll go into that a little bit. Yeah. yeah you know well, something or you don't. Yeah. And I, I watch my students and I know when they're sitting there and they don't know what to do next. And so I try to go up to them and tell them, either ask them a question or tell them something, get them off of that dime, right? And you don't lecture them and make them, they're, they're not going to think of certain things, you know? And so... I think our, our job as instructors and teachers is to st- be sensitive to where they are in their learning path and provide the next thing they need to know. If it's a matter of they need to read a chapter in a book and take a quiz, that's fine. We're good at that. But I'm talking about know, knowing. Like, and knowing is if I approach the student and they don't know something and I tell them something and then I leave the room and they know it, that's that's the transfer of knowledge that I'm talking about doing, not the assignment of a reading, uh, you know, a chapter in a book, which is good too. There's lots mm-hmm. of ways to get information, uh, but I really find it um, uh, 
I had a class last Wednesday that was so exciting, just looking at the faces of the students and then the kinds of questions they asked. And then they followed me out in the hallway after the class because there was another class going to so, use So, Terry, the... you're really reading people as much as possible. You're, well, you're, this you're... is who we're designing buildings yeah. for. Yeah. And as much as some architects are looking to get a cover out of a magazine, which is a worthy goal, too, <laughs> it's like sure. if, if we want to really design spaces where people are having quality um, uh, experiences, uh, quality of life experiences if they're living in them, you know. I, I always think that um, like half the buildings I'm in, nobody can find a room number, right? How, <laughs> yeah. how difficult is it to number the room so you can find the room you're looking for? And I, I won't mention any universities, <laughs> but there's some, a lot of universities, that, you know, people, 90% of the people are walking around lost. They don't know where <laughs> Coverly is, you know. How do you find out where Coverly is when you don't know where Coverly is? That's the kind of thing that I'm looking at when I look at what the experience is because people don't like to be lost. Uh, Richard Saul Worman, somebody who I really admired, he start, started the TED Talks, but he trans laded his experience as an architect. He was in a hospital. He was looking for his mother. His mother was dying, and he was lost. And he said, this is crazy. I'm an architect, and I'm lost in a building. So the research that they're doing on the hippocampus, which is the part of the brain that decides what goes into long-term memory and what goes into short-term memory, also does spatial memory. Like, I don't have to turn around and look at the door to know that's the way out of here. Humans that retain that kind of spatial knowledge are biologically successful. The other ones got eaten or got lost or are stuck <laughs> in a room somewhere. You know, so we're, we're these wonderful biological life forms. How do we take care of ourselves the best way possible? And how do we create buildings that really allow a village to thrive and then allow people to go to a, a, a city where they can thrive if that's what they want to do? Yeah. Those, are, those are the big questions for architects, for me, for the future that we're looking at. And, and we're going to address those. I mean, it's going to yeah. be a really exciting time. Yeah. So it's, exci- it's been exciting. How, how have you seen architecture evolve? It will evolve so much in the last, say, say two years even. Two to three years. Well, jumping back more, I showed a, f- a picture one time. I stopped doing it because people thought I was like a contemporary of Thomas Jefferson. I showed them the tools <laughs> I used to design buildings in college, you know, a triangle, you know, a yeah. protractor, uh, a, protractor. A, a, a parallel rule, you know, uh, vellum. What were they doing? Like, what? What's you know, it? keeping my pencil sharp with a pencil sharpener. And it just it literally looked like, you know, there's a Thomas Jefferson thing where he yeah, was able to yeah. copy something. It just looked like something out of Monticello. <laughs> and so in the last two years, um, I think I think we've been ground down a little bit too much in that BIM and CAD really aren't the solutions to, you know, be all end all. I think they've been successful for the companies that make software. I think for architects practicing, it's been a a challenge and a frustrating experience to really have, no one sits down to design a building and opens up their CAD program. You know, it's just like, it doesn't work that way. So that tactile base fundamental foundation is, is, you think it'll always be vital? I hope so. I mean, I was at a a D-School meeting on Friday, and they were having people shake hands and make glasses out of pipe cleaners and just sort of loosen up a little bit and and be creative and be thinking. Um, I think that we can do things that are very specific to learning how to be good architects and designers. But um, a lot of times students say, how do you know all this stuff? Because, Because, you know, they've been taking classes and they're learning topics that they can take a quiz on and then move to the next course. 
I've been working for 40 years, and that's what excites me. I'm amazed at what a building really is and how it gets done and how many people it takes and the financing and real estate and and The whole process of it all. Oh, yeah. 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 And I think— It's awesome. I think we could really light up more students if we took a multidisciplinary approach to all of those elements that go together for a really exciting building package. It's just just more interesting than— uh, than it, it is often uh, presented. But Stanford's got some really good programs in, in uh, sustainable urban systems and, and uh, uh, you know, different groups that are all working and stuff. I'm on a, in, a U.S.-India roundtable, and so that's, I know people that are in the uh, econ school and education and, you know, different areas. And so it's starting to really come together in that way. And Stanford's like the, the ideal environment to be in. I mean, I... I go to classes in other areas all the time here, and it just amazes me. Yeah, it's a, Terry. It's been great having you as our guest today. Thank you. We're we're truly honored. My pleasure. I really Thank appreciate you. the opportunity. You've been listening to the Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Terry Bouwar, architect. Terry has experience in over forty years of architecture and advanced technology practice in the San Francisco Bay Area, and continues to travel and present at conferences around the world. Terry's consulted with NASA, Apple, Adobe, and many other Silicon Valley companies and is CEO of Building Knowledge Systems, LLC. For more information, visit profiles.stanford.edu slash Terry dash B-E-A-U-B-O-I-S. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and is a production of KZCU Radio. The recording engineer and production manager is Akshay Jaggi. Assistant engineer is McGregor Joyner, and we're all assisted by Bryce Carter. The executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Dioro. Please tune in again next week for another episode of The Modern Architect. Support for KZSU comes from Modeler.com a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com works with architects from architecture and design firms to discover, discuss, and specify products for their building projects. We at KZSU thank Modeler.com for their generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect.